Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people evolving business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Hey everybody, this is Vesna Luka and you're listening to the Corporate Unplugged podcast. On the show today, Nipun Mehta, founder of Service Space Org, an incubator of projects that support a gift culture. And today we'll discuss the power of context and AI and also what social change really is about. So Nippon, a big, big welcome to my podcast. I'm so grateful that our thoughts have crossed. Likewise, I'm happy to be here. 25 years ago in Silicon Valley, uh, you started Service Space as actually an experiment with friends. And today it is a global ecosystem with around 1.5 million members. And they've not only delivered millions of dollars in service for free, but they're also regenerating a gift culture. So you've created this like meta gift economy experiment, actually. I'm just curious, like today, what are you most proud of and what is your intention now further with Service Space? Well, if I were to think about what I'm most proud of, I would probably say that I think I am most proud that I think I'm a better human being myself, (laughs) you know, um, that where I was 25 years ago, and then you add in 25 years of volunteerism, who knows what change you make on the outside, but you certainly know that you are changing yourself. And so I think I would be very happy about that as my perhaps only metric. But in terms of external work of service space, I would say, you know, I think we have shown the power of intrinsic motivations that I think we tend to look, you know, if you look at society on the whole, you see a private sector and a public sector and a voluntary sector. And typically, you know, the public sector is there to sort of keep the private and the voluntary sector intact, in balance. And in reality, what it has happened in our world today is that the private sector has just sort of, you know, gobbled up much of the public sector and the voluntary sector is almost like seen as a completely insignificant part of society. And so I think what service space has done in part through its many projects and many ripples is that it's shown that perhaps, you know, we shouldn't really be throwing away the voluntary sector, that there is power to intrinsic motivators and that you can combine, of course, at some level, intrinsic and extrinsic are connected, but there's also a lot of research that shows that when you have extrinsic motivators connected with intrinsic motivators, the extrinsic end up crowding out the intrinsic. And so how can you create islands of possibility where all of us collectively on this island are led by intrinsic motivations? And what happens? to the arc of innovation in that kind of an ecosystem. Uh, I think it's significantly different. And I think we're showing some of that possibility. Maybe you can give us one or two concrete examples of projects by a service space and, and how it functions. Because in one way or the other, people might think, okay, whatever is created has to be sustainable. And in order for it to be sustainable, it has to have some kind of a, let's call it business model, right? So we started in that same way too, because that's the advice we got. We were planted in the Silicon Valley. And initially we started and we said, we just want to practice giving. And so you just give. And as that's what we did, we built websites for nonprofits back in 1999. In fact, we just started by building one and that felt really good. So we said, let's build another one and another one. And we ended up building thousands of them with thousands of volunteers coming on board. And we were like right out of college. So it was like, oh, what is this? We've kind of just hit a gold mine. 
And why is nobody after that gold mine? You had people just willing to contribute their time, labor, talent, and creativity, their enthusiasm, the energy. It was all multiplying with each other. We're like, this is fabulous. And then we said, well, what can you do with all this? You know. And so we started to look at society. We had institutional capacity. Instead of having like five staff working 40 hours a week, our thought was, what if you had 40 volunteers contributing five hours a week? Because we had a seemingly infinite supply of volunteers. I mean, we do a terrible job as society in terms of leveraging this kind of capital that's really there for our taking. And so we created this infrastructure in some sense. It was smart use of technology, you know, emotionally savvy, very externally skillful, all those things put together. And we then had institutional capacity. So we were able to operate with very little money, with very little financial capital. Uh, because we knew how to use other forms of cap. And so we said, wow, like we can actually do stuff. And then we said, well, what should we do? We should solve problems. Well, what kind of problems? Well, we should solve hard problems and we should try to be disruptive. We said, okay, what would that look like? We said, well, the hardest problems are the ones that money can't solve. And so if you look and you ask most people, well, what are problems money can't solve? And people would be like, uh, wait, no, what do you mean? Like money can solve everything. I mean, in fact, the reason why we're not solving problems is because we don't have enough money, right? That's our usual logic. And it turns out to be not true at all. For instance, you can say, why do we just have bad news in the world? Why don't we have good news? Well, because good news doesn't sell. And so we don't have good news. But do you really want to grow up is seeing bad news all the time? Like this is the worst of human impulses that we then highlight and we say, oh, somebody did this again and someone did this again, someone did this again. And you're like, okay, yeah, maybe that's the worst of human possibility, but we also are capable of a lot more. So we were like, oh, why don't we have that? You know, and you can go down the list and you're like, why don't we have kindness? So we, we would actually go and create all these things. We said, let's do a portal around kindness. There was no significant portal on the web around kindness early on. And so everyone was busy trying to monetize on base impulses of our human experience. And we said that that's not really the full spectrum. And so we started to optimize. And that was just in the first couple of years, right? And then you have 25 years of this stuff. People would be like, well, let's do offline stuff. And then let's do, you know, this kind of thing. And let's do experiment in a hybrid way, which is offline and online. And so it just ended up becoming like a massive ecosystem. One project which I particularly love is Karma Kitchen, which is a restaurant where, you know, this goes to your point. Well, how will it sustain itself? You know, anything. And I think to that point, what ends up happening is that if you serve with no strings attached, no financial implications whatsoever, you will have a deep relationship. And if you have enough deep relationships, someone's cup of gratitude somewhere will overflow. And so you can think of it as the gratitude economy. And most of us are like, oh, the world doesn't work like that. But then again, our first nine months of life uh, worked like that. We didn't have a deal with our moms and we were gifted that. And so it's almost innate in us that we understand that you can actually operate in a much deeper way, but we don't have any systems to show us that. And I think we've lost faith. But as I was saying at Karma Kitchen, you walk in and it's a restaurant. We run this as like a pop-up experiment to show some of these ideas. 
and that it can work. So you walk in and at the end of your meal, your check reads zero. And it's zero, not because it's free, but because someone before you has paid for you and you are trusted to pay forward for people after you. Most people are like, wait, that can't work, right? Like life is all about transaction. If I don't secure enough for myself, I will be left behind. That's the narrative in our mind. It's a completely untested hypothesis, but that's nonetheless the dominant paradigm narrative. And so we said, if that's true, then this experiment will shut down. But guess what happens? Huge amounts of interest in just dining there. There's like huge wait lists. It's number one on Yelp, which is a restaurant review sort of system across all of Berkeley where we started it. You have a huge waiting list for volunteers, just people willing and happy to like just do your dishes and serve because the context is so strong. At the end of the meal, people paying, you know, it actually, there was a UC Berkeley research paper uh, that came out. Uh, it was a very widely cited paper. And the title of that paper was Paying More When Paying for Others. And so it's like, yeah, if you set the right context, people actually respond to generosity with greater generosity. And so to our transactional mind, all of that is like, wait, how does it work? And it's like, really, the question is, how do you think you can sustainably survive on transactions? That is far more baffling than this gratitude economy that all of us have experienced with our birth as a start. So Nipun, I think it's so interesting to ask the question about a person's passion you know, that thing that is so important to you that you're also willing to suffer for it or sacrifice something very big for it if needed in order to understand the person deeply. So I'm asking you, what is your passion? I would say that I am very moved when I see others moved by love. So to facilitate people's experiences of generosity, for instance, is something that makes me come alive, even if it's in the smallest act of kindness. I would be willing to do anything to create a meaningful service opportunity for somebody else. And so I don't know if that qualifies as a passion, but that would be something that makes me come alive. Great. I think we share that passion. <laughs> and now I have, it's a big, big question, I understand, but still it's intriguing to ask, like, what do you think is the future that you wish to see, let's say in five or 10 years time, you know, how, how does it look there? How does it feel there? Who's there? What's happening there? Yeah, well, this is a really relevant question if you consider AI into the mix and, you know, who is there? I mean, there could be scenarios where it's none of us and it's just AI, but I think the scenario that I would like to see is an integrated scenario where we take the best of the possibilities that technology gives us and uh, also the best of humans, right, and, and how those create a virtuous cycle not a vicious cycle where we're all playing defense. You know, one of my friends had a very beautiful quote. Uh, she's a constitutional lawyer and she drafted the constitution of Iraq and Afghanistan and was Obama's general counsel. And she says something very interesting. She said that we often tend to play defense on virtue, but offense on vice, right? And how do we flip that? That most of these systems are meant to play defense and on vice, on our negative tendencies. Uh, but can we actually have them play offense on virtue? You know, that to me, a future in say 2033, you know, would be a world in which we use AI responsibly and AI helps us 
figure out what it means to be a deeper human being. And I think if there is a scenario where there is a best case scenario where we're able to use it right, and that's what I would hope that we get to. From your contextual lens, so to say, still, what threats does AI pose, do you think? And, and most of all, what are the opportunities that you are hoping for where this kind of um, alignment can happen between, as you say, what we need as humanity and being served from AI? Well, I mean, I think the biggest threat that AI is already posing before it even hits things like artificial general intelligence, I mean, it's already making the cost of content trend towards zero. And the cost of knowledge goes towards zero. I think the biggest threat is it threatens our sense of identity because you're like, wow, I thought all the things that created the, our sense of identity, a lot of them revolve around content, a lot of them revolve around knowledge. This is what I know. This is what I process. This is what I write. This is what I create. This is a poem I manufacture. This is a song I deliver. And now AI yeah, can do all these things way better, right? And by the day. So I think, what did they say? IQ of AI last year was uh, 120. Earlier this year was 160. Einstein was 165, and they're saying by next year is going to be a thousand. So to go in and tell somebody, "Hey, you're so smart," it's just not a compliment anymore, you know. Or you're so talented, like even that, right? We're talented at doing what? Because an AI is going to be able to do all of that in all languages in like five seconds, you know. So that I think is a poses a real threat, and this is like here right now. As AI, you know, continues to exponentially sort of grow in its computing capacity, in its data processing capacity, in its emergent capacities even, there's very open question marks of what AGI, what they think about as artificial general intelligence, what will that do and how will that change us as a society? But how could we align artificial intelligence with maybe what you would call hard intelligence, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's the core question is that, well, there are these threats, there are these possible scenarios where it doesn't work out well for humanities. And then you say, well, what are the scenarios where it can? And I think one of those scenarios is that we really start to tune into the building blocks. So if the building block for our AI innovations is transactional, then we'll see the end of that game because if we're trying to transact and now we have just created this behemoth that has far more capacity, there's no transactional strength that you have on your end. But if we lead with something a little deeper than just content, right? If we lead with an intelligence that is deeper than just the intellect alone, then I think we can figure out a way in which, you know, the AI helps us do all the intellect stuff and all the knowledge stuff and all the even the creative stuff well what we can do what we are capable of doing and perhaps uniquely so is to feel is to love is to care and if that kind of intelligence can lead the ai innovations then i think we can have this collective consciousness shift where we're no longer just uh, you know where we're not just defined by how much we have but maybe by how much we circulate by how much we give how much we share, and how deeply we are related. Maybe we don't have to be so isolated, because I think that's what transaction does. It isolates you, disconnects you, and then we have all these solutions for handling our disconnection. But maybe we can actually reconnect 
and we can then continue to circulate our our merits. And as we do that, maybe we create a virtuous cycle where we feel you know a deeper sense of belonging. We have a much grander sense of identity, and we are all in service to each other instead of just being transactional. You mentioned this disconnection that many of us are experiencing and talking about, and it shows up in so many kind of different ways. It can be social or in other ways. But how can we reconnect as is now? You know, my recipe for reconnecting is really to just do a small act of kindness. I would say one other thing that has helped me is silence. Um, just quieting the mind, meditation. And the other thing that helps me reconnect is being kind, doing those small acts of kindness. Now, in a world full of noise, silence feels like a waste of time. And in a world full of accomplishments, a small act feels like meaningless. But actually, I would say it is the most significant because it connects you to yourself. That before I can do an external act of kindness for somebody else, I first need to reconnect with that force in me. And I, I think as you do that, like kindness quiets the mind. You know, as soon as the mind gets quieter, because you're no longer in the me, you're starting to think of the we, starts to quiet the mind. As the mind gets quiet, you fall into an interconnection, a natural interconnection. And as you fall into this deep interconnection, you're much more satisfied. You're no longer seeking as much. You're naturally kind. You're naturally connected to your you know, deepest impulses. So I would really recommend it to anybody, including myself, that you know, uh, whenever you feel disconnected, go out and do an act of kindness. Of course, that doesn't mean that we don't need to address systemic reasons for our disconnection, and of which we have plenty. And we need to address those. But I think we want to be rooted in our own inner transformation first. What about your life? What kind of transformational points have influenced you the most so far? Maybe you can mention a few. Yeah, I, mean, I would say one of the biggest transformative things in my life, uh, sort of episodes or events. or I mean, it, it lasted a year, but it was a walking pilgrimage that my wife and I did across India, where we decided we would eat whatever food is offered and sleep wherever place is offered. This is like back in 2005, we were, you know, at that point, service space felt like we, was, we were in the peak of our work. And although we weren't dealing too much with financial capital, we certainly had a lot of influence. And, you know, it felt like, oh my God, we can't leave this. Should we leave this? And then the thought that came to our mind, particularly my wife's mind, was, we left all this to not have the shackles and can good work be its own kind of shackles? That, you know, like there's a Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. So you keep on moving the chairs on the deck of the Titanic and you think, oh my God, there's so much progress. I did so much work today, you know, but the whole ship is sinking. And so you never quite looked at the broader view. And so we said, well, how do we know that this whole thing hasn't trapped us? And we said, well, there's only one way to find out. Can you let it all go? And so we sold everything we had, took a one-way ticket to India, to the Gandhi ashram, where because Gandhi was a big inspiration for us. And we said we would eat whatever food is offered and sleep wherever place is offered. And my goodness, you know, when you, <laughs> when you operate in that way, you are going to be revealed a lot of insight into intrinsic motivations, into connection, into community, into systems, everything. And so it was, it was very profound. So I would say that, you know, most of us have never had 
food where somebody borrowed food to feed you. And what do you do when somebody does that? That they're like, man, I can't afford my own food, but the way I was raised, I think guest is God. And so you have come up at my doorstep and I would rather go in debt and not feed myself than to miss the opportunity to serve you. You know, what do you say to that? How do you process that? How do you eat that meal? It's humbling. It fills you with gratitude. It's kind of confusing for the ego to hold. And then you just move on. And it's like day after day after day. I would say that was a pretty transformative experience. We ended up walking a thousand kilometers and then ended up at a monastery where we meditated for three months. But it was quite a bit of this inner transformation. It's raw. I mean, you're right there in the hands of, and sometimes things don't work out, you know, because nobody cares how smart you are on the streets. Nobody cares what your degrees are, or what your accomplishments are. In that moment, it's like, can you serve? If you can serve, you're relevant. But like, oh, how am I going to serve? Well, I don't have anything. Well, you can pick up trash on the streets. You can, you know, sweep outside a temple in a village. You can push a vegetable seller's cart. You can lift, you know, an old man's haystack. There are a thousand ways to be helpful, but you have to get out of your own sort of concerns and needs. And you can't be like, oh my God, it's a 110 degrees Fahrenheit right now or 120. Many times it was more than that. And you're like, I'm so hot. I need water. I need food. Why are people so mean? Why can't this happen and that happen? And if you're thinking about that, surprise, surprise, nobody cares about you because you've made the whole thing about you. But if you can generate an intention of goodwill, if you care for others, then others are going to care for you. And so how do you lead with that other-centered view that then translates into your own well-being? So I would say that was a pretty significant experience of my life and turning point, you know, maybe, maybe many turning points every day. And what a gift that you could do that together with your wife, because it's not always that a couple, just because they're a wife and, and husband, right, that they are in alignment with, you know, the, these things. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so grateful for my wife. Absolutely. In fact, she was the one who pushed me into it. I think I would have just talked myself out of it because I'd be like, well, I could do all that, but there's so much suffering in the world and I need to help and I need to do all these things. And she was like, well, that's true, but you also need to make sure there's a better you for the world that's helping. And so how do you keep on changing and deepening your own channels? And so she was very clear on it and it made sense to me, but probably left to my own devices, I may have talked myself out of it, but she was very clear and I really trusted her and I still do. And so it's been a great blessing. Is she involved in service space oh, yeah. as well? Or? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. We've known each other well before service space. Fantastic. So Nippon, what do you think is like the long-term solution for business? Like what long-term formula do you believe in? Or should we scrap the whole thing and rebuild it from scratch? Or do you believe in transforming the businesses that are out there? I mean, I think we absolutely have to transform I think we have to evolve businesses. I, I think by any metric, right, if you look at people's dissatisfaction at work and the amount of energy they're putting in, like it's dismal. Most people are kind of checked out at work. And so we kind of put all these patchwork, right? Like, so we, we do that. But I think at some point we need to probably make more radical innovations, not just patchwork. And I think the core of it is to really move from transaction to relationships. How do you make 
a context which is much more relational than transactional. Because like right now, I think it's very rooted in transaction, which really starts to crowd out intrinsic motivators. And you see this in all kinds of movements like quiet quitting. And, you know, there, there's a long range of, uh, you know, you can cite data after data on how people are just disengaged at work. And, and you can bring in all the inspiring speakers. You can put all kinds of glossy sort of veneer on it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you say, well, what is the core operating system? for groups of people to cooperate and work together to create something substantial in the world. And I think can the center of gravity of that move from just being purely transactional? And I really like Adam Grant's uh, framework. Adam Grant at Wharton wrote a book called, I is written various books, but his first one was called Give and Take. In fact, I met him right before he wrote that book. He's a great guy himself. And he says he uses a very good framework. He says there's three kinds of people. I would clarify that. And I would say there's three kinds of mindsets, not people, givers, takers, and matchers. So givers give, takers take first. And matchers will say, look, if you're a taker, I'm going to put a boundary. And if you're a giver, I'm going to be nice to you. So in any given ecosystem, you have givers, takers, and matchers. And if your center of gravity moves from takers towards more givers, or even if it is towards givers, it moves towards greater givers, uh, then what you end up with is a win in all columns, right? Productivity goes up, your network strength goes up, your leadership is a lot better. All across the board, I think, is just incredibly powerful. So that, I think, is the invitation, is to say, how can I look at my ecology in a business setting and say, what is my giver quotient? How do I increase it a little bit? And I think over time, you realize that you can increase it by being more relational and less transactional. And so what, what are the different ways in which we encourage that? And I think that's an important question to ask and not just be singularly bottom line driven, which is just not sustainable. It feels like it is sustainable, but actually just in the best case scenario, you, your company might do good, but you have created all these unintended consequences for society. That if I'm your employee and I'm unhappy and I bring my problems to my home and I don't have time for my kids and all of that, like, great, maybe your stock goes up, but society's stock goes down, you know? And so how do we start to think in a much larger frame, in a much more integrated frame? And I think a lot of that starts with just asking the simple question, how do I move the center of my gravity from takers to givers? And um, typically, a lot of what we would call leaders today are listening to this podcast. So what advice would you give to them right now? I think there's a beautiful quote by Bill Hanover. I think he was a CEO of an insurance company. He says that the success of an intervention really depends on the interior condition of the intervenor. The thing with leadership is that you have to choose between right and right. You're not just choosing between right and wrong. That anyone can do. A leader has to look at very different, there's like a different opportunity cost here and a different opportunity cost here. So between the two rights, what are you going to, you know, how are you going to choose? Which one are you going to choose? And then as you choose that intervention, like what is the through line of that external intervention to the interior condition of the intervener, to what's going on inside you? 
that through line needs to be investigated for a really good leader. So if you look at leaders like, say, Gandhi or Dalai Lama or Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, you can go down the list. They had a very clear through line of how their inner fields connected with the outer interventions. So the advice I would give to leaders is to really start to pay attention and to investigate and come up with your own answer, but come up with an answer. Like do spend time investigating it. And that answer changes. So don't just have like one static answer and this is like for 30 years. Like keep investigating how deeply the inner and the outer are connected. Great advice. And what about yourself? Like, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, what advice would you have given yourself? You know, a teenager asked me that question once. It says, what advice would you give to your 16-year-old self? And what came up spontaneously in that moment, I think at 16, I thought that I just put a lot of premium on effort. Like I was the kind of guy, you know, I took 40 semester units in one, one semester, which is like full-time load is 12 units, right? And so I was the kind of guy that I went skiing one time and I was like, by the end of the day, I, you know, I'd never skied before. And I was like, by the end of the day, I'm going to be on the black diamond slope. And I was, and you know, I start playing chess and I'm like, okay, I'm going to start playing with a master, you know, grandmaster and things like that. Like I had that kind of an accomplishment mindset. Large part of that is because I think I used to play tennis. And when you play tennis, when you lose a match, you come back and you say, I just got to try harder. But the problem with that try harder algorithm is that it puts all the onus on you. So the advice I would give to my 16-year-old self is that there's a balance between grit and grace and pay attention to that balance. I think for me, when I was 16, unfortunately, or maybe even fortunately, but unfortunately, I would say at the moment, I thought that 90% was my effort and 10% was unearned merit. You can call it grace, you can call it karma, whatever you want. I think now I would see it the other way almost. My effort is barely what is creating the external impact. I think a large part of it is the sort of unexpected, unearned merit is this emergence that happens in the field of connection. So the advice I would really give to my 16-year-old self is pay attention to this unspoken yet very real balance you have between grit and grace. How much of this is grit? How much of it is grace? And we know how to amplify grit because we're like, oh my God, you against all odds, you did it. And wow, you're such a hard worker. But we don't really know how to appreciate, acknowledge, and regenerate grace. And so I think there's good reason to investigate. Yeah, to lean into and rely on, on grace. What do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now? I think really thinking about AI is on everyone's mind, but how, you know, it's like one of my friends was advising, he started a couple of successful companies and he was like, Napoon, you know, like all these people come to me and they're like, what should I do with AI? And I tell them and they're like, wow, I can do the work of 1500 staff with like practically zero overhead now. Hi, this is amazing. And he says, they're all in and they want to do all these innovations around AI. And then he says that, but then I tell them, you know, six months after that, that same logic is like coming for your head. 
It's just you're going to be irrelevant. And he says, oh, no, 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 that's, uh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll deal with that when I get there. And so I, I would say, and this is a very common human tendency that, oh, if I can profit this much right now, let me bag it in. And then, oh, six months after that, yeah, I, I'll somehow game it, you know, so we're biased against that kind of a longer term view. So I think in society, we have this struggle between narrow margin goals and broad margin goals. And narrow margin goals are more, much more short term and broad margin are the ones that are much wiser, much deeper, include much, much more. So it's not just about doing the broad margin goals, but it's about having a healthy balance between narrow margin and broad margin. And I think that's a really important thing, especially with the advent of AI. So how will we create that balance? And there's something that I think businesses ought to really tune into. What, what are your broad margin goals? Every, all businesses know their narrow margin goals, but how do we start to be clear on what the broad margin goals are, where, where we stand on it, how we're going to really allow those broad margin goals to negotiate with the narrow margin goals? Nibun, my last question to you is this one. What do you think the world needs most at this time? A little bit more kindness, I would say. There's so many challenges across so many sectors, and we are caught in these multipolar traps across the board, that if you change one thing, you alter something on another polarity, which creates suffering for a whole swath of populations. And I think it's a very difficult time to be alive. But yet, as Viktor Frankl said, you know, in his book, Man and the Search for Meaning, He says he was at the concentration camps and man, what blew him away was people still responded with love and generosity. And I think that human dose of kindness feels so insignificant in a way in the light of all these larger problems. But I think that's precisely how history changes is all those things. If you look, you know, Nicholas Taleb wrote a book called Black Swan, where he chronicled all the major events in human history. And he says, you know, we're terrible at predicting any major event that alters the course of human history. And I think that maybe kindness is a black swan. Maybe a small act is actually much more because a small act connects you to a deeper web of consciousness. And as you become more connected to this web of consciousness, perhaps it makes us an instrument of something that's far greater. So it seems small and it seems insignificant, but I think it could just be a black swan. So I, I have my hopes pinned on a small act of kindness. I, I was just at Harvard two days ago and at the end of the day, I was speaking at a conference and then they had invited all the speakers to like a fancy dinner. And the waiter comes up to me and he's like asking me questions. I was just nice to him and there were a couple of us. And because I was nice to him, he was like, oh, what is that? You know, And I was like, I don't know, you should tell me. He's like, well, they told us it's vegetarian sushi, but what is vegetarian sushi? He started talking to me about it. And I was like, well, you know, you should have it. You should try it. He's like, oh, no, no, I'm not allowed to do that. And because he'd asked me so many questions, I was like, well, you may not be allowed to do that, but I am allowed to do this. And I took one of the sushis and I put it in his mouth. And he just was like so happy And I was so happy and there was such a great bond. And you look and you say, well, what's the impact of that? I don't know. But I can be sure that I felt different. He felt different. The space between us felt different. The relationship was different. And if we all keep doing that, who knows? Maybe it alters uh, the field of emergence. So I have my hopes 
pinned on small acts of kindness, which we're all capable of doing even before we learn language. We are all prone to doing these small acts of love. So I hope we keep doing it. Fantastic. And uh, I love your black swan, the kindness. And I'm also thinking that we can re redefine this, uh, you know, what we see as a hero. I think we're surrounded by these small heroes around us, you know, doing these acts of, of kindness every single day. And we all can do something, always, always. Thank you so much, Nipun. Thank you for really being here on the show. How did you feel? It's great. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted that we're asking these deeper questions about the future, about the present, and about our connection to our values. Thanks for listening to the show. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. To make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. I'm Vesna Luca and you have been listening to Corporate Unplugged. Until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.